Welcome back to the Progress City Radio Hour. My name is Michael Crawford. With me, as always, is my brother, Jeff Crawford. Jeff, how's it going? I'm doing great. You know, out here in the wilds, enjoying enjoying life. I know. I'm looking for Regis, because he was always in the wilds that's, somewhere. That's right. He knew how to get, get in some palm fronds. <laughs> exactly. Uh, as you might have guessed, we are back to talk more about Adventureland. In our last episode, we took a tour of Adventureland Pass, talked about some things. Uh, if you missed that, be sure to go back and listen. But today we're going to be taking a little different tack, I think. We're going to be talking about some of the people who influenced Adventureland in a big, big way. That's right. Some of the most important people affected early Disneyland history as well, uh, just globally. Exactly. We're going to be talking about designer, art director, set designer extraordinaire, Harper Goff. We're going to be talking about landscaper Bill Evans, who has a long and storied Disney career, as you will hear. And we're going to be looking at a film which casts a long shadow through Adventureland history, the Disney saga the Swiss Family Robinson. This is a all-time classic. Yes, man. It's a movie uh, I watched pretty recently for another podcast we do, and it's just still so good. Yeah. It looks so great. So Yeah, it's a beautiful uh, film. Can't beat that cast. And uh, yeah. yeah, lots of behind-the-scenes stuff that Jeff uncovered for that is interesting. Also, because, you know, what is any tropical hideaway without... A tropical feast. Uh, Jeff, why don't you tell us what you're going to be cooking up? I'm going to be making some stuff from the Adventureland Veranda and the Polynesian Village Resort. So uh, bring your citrus. Flavors of an era long gone by. We're going to citrusize things here on the podcast. So, uh, gosh, without further ado, we've got so much to do. So let's uh, pack up our, our duffels. I don't know what, what what you pack when you're going into the jungle, but we'll we'll pack it, and uh, let's see what's happening in the jungles of Adventureland. And now your Disneyland host, Walt Disney. For the first adventure, we're going to take you on an escape to paradise for the behind-the-scenes story of our motion picture, The Swiss Family Robinson, one of the greatest adventure stories of all times. It was written. A century and a half ago, and countless generations have enjoyed it ever since. When we decided to bring this story to the screen, we knew it had the elements to make an exciting motion picture. The Swiss family Robinson, father, mother, and their sons, who were shipwrecked and marooned on an uncharted island. Faced with dangers, their chances for survival here were extremely doubtful. Without hope of rescue, this resourceful family prepared for a lifetime completely cut off from civilization. In spite of the many difficulties, they established themselves in this new world and found complete happiness. We knew we couldn't do justice to this story on a Hollywood soundstage, so we began a search to find a tropical island such as described in the book. But where could we find it? Here, right off the island of Trinidad in the Caribbean Sea is the smaller island of Tobago. Tobago had everything we needed. In fact, it's an island where the adventures of the Swiss family Robinson could have actually happened. 
Since our stage was a tropical island, we knew we would be faced with many problems. But like the Swiss family Robinson, we improvised, invented, and had a wonderful time doing it. And that's the adventure we take you on now. In 1940, RKO Pictures released Swiss Family Robinson, a movie based on the 1812 novel by Johann David Wyss. The movie fared relatively well, earning an Academy Award nomination for Best Special Effects and inspiring Walt Disney and producer Bill Anderson to someday make his own version of the tale. In 1958, it was announced that Disney was producing a version of Swiss Family Robinson for TV, with Disney stalwart writer Lawrence E. Watkin on the script. Watkin had produced screenplays for many Disney films, including Treasure Island, Darby O'Gill and the Little People, and The Sword and the Rose, among others. These movies were produced overseas, starting with Treasure Island, Disney's first live-action film, due to money being held overseas that couldn't be spent in the United States, and this led to a string of great features. Yeah, it's strange that they got their start filming so much in Britain just because their money was stuck there after the war. Right, and then they get to know these uh, production people, and it's kind of their, you know, a, a wing of what they do for a really long time. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, somewhere along the way, Walt and Anderson decided that Swiss Family Robinson would be bumped up to a theatrical release, and it was announced in 1959. British director Ken Anakin, who had directed Sword in the Rose and most recently Third Man on the Mountain in Switzerland, was signed on to direct, and Lowell S. Hawley began to write who had been busy writing the Zaro TV series. The Walt Disney Studio was in a rich period of live-action movies and television production and would bring in many involved in previous releases for this movie. From 1957's Old Yeller, Walt would recruit Dorothy McGuire to play the role of Ma, a very similar role indeed. James MacArthur, who appeared in The Light in the Forest and Third Man on the Mountain, would play Fritz, and Disney regular Tommy Kirk would be Ernst, straight off his role as Wilby Daniels in The Shaggy Dog. Also, from Third Man on the Mountain and Darby O'Gill and the Little People, Janet Monroe would be cast as Roberta. John Mills, a star in British cinema and father to Disney favorite Haley Mills, would be cast as Pa. And the first real Asian star of American cinema, Japanese-born Sesu Hayakawa, who made his hay in the 1910s in silent cinema, would be cast as the pirate chief. Now, Michael, this blew my mind when I found this out for the first time. Yeah, he was like a big-time, like, cool sex symbol guy in American movies, not in Japanese movies, but in American movies. Yeah. It, it's really wild. That's right. And we can't go on without mentioning Kevin Corcoran. Moochie himself uh, would be cast as well. And so uh, there's a story of Ken Anakin, uh, you know, finding these great British kids. And Walt was like, no, nah, no, I got, <laughs> I, I, I got the kids. I got the, I got all the kids you need. There's no British equivalent to Moochie for sure. There's no British Moochie at all. Story work on Swiss Family Robinson would be unconventional for what Anakin was used to and heavily involved Walt during meetings. Not only was the 1940 movie held up as an example of what not to do, the book was essentially thrown out and Walt encouraged the team to think of fun things a family could do while stranded on a deserted island as a starting point. Walt hired John Jensen to illustrate for storyboards first, and then Lowell Hawley would write dialogue and script to the storyboard images. Disney decided that the soundstage wouldn't do the story justice, and set about for a location shoot in tropical locales. 
Walt encouraged Anakin to try Trinidad, but once there, the people of Trinidad encouraged the crew to scout Tobago, a smaller island a 20-minute plane flight away. Once on Tobago, a gregarious cab driver drove them all around the 14-mile island, and in a day and a half, they had most of the scouting locations they needed. Well, that's convenient. Yeah. Got to tip that guy. Well, that local knowledge, yeah. That's right. Now the responsibility of transforming these locations into usable film sets fell to, among other people, art director John Howell, who did a masterful job conceiving and designing beautiful sets, none more stunning than the Grand Tree House, set in a giant saman tree that Howell spotted at the corner of a cricket field on the island. Since Tobago was in fact remote, the studio had to construct a movie studio on the island, complete with a soundstage made of sheet metal and assorted shops, dining facilities, and, well, I could tell you about it, but why don't I let Sir Hercules the Invincible and his friends tell you about it in the typical Tobago style. Oh, the people of Tobago enjoy their fun. They never shirk when there's work to be done. And a lot of work was heading our way, making the movies and the overtime pay. Cause the Swiss family Robinson Company was brought to Tobago by Walt Disney. Loaded down with necessities, they would use microphone lights and camera crews. Oh, yes, my friends, we have. Had a lot of fun making Swiss Family Robinson. Yes, my friends, we had a lot of fun making Swiss Family Robinson. The folks of the island were glad to be part of Walt Disney's company. Where the trucks couldn't go, the people got, and they changed the jungle to a movie lot. When the actors arrive on location, they said it isn't work, it's a vacation. They like what they saw and they said it's nice, why it's an escape to paradise. John Mills came from London so he could be the father of the famous Swiss family. And Hollywood's Dorothy Maguire's his wife in the Swiss family Robinson's adventurous life. There's Janet Monroe and James MacArthur. And again from England, there is Cecil Parker, Cecil Hayakawa from far off Japan. And there is Tommy Kirk and Kevin Cochran. They were passing our story for animals too. So we had to import a tropical zoo. But to work in our movie, they had to be members of the animal equity. The shark did not want to cooperate, but we offered him a little more bait. Then his agent said, you better take the deal. It's an excellent part and you are in the first reel. The work proceeded at a rapid pace. We were setting up equipment all over the place. But even on location, there is one rule. The younger generation must go to school. But school and Tobago is such happiness. Where else can you have such a happy recess? Oh yes, my friend, we had a lot of fun 
Oh, Moochie. <laughs> this is... That is an incredible... <laughs> oh, that is an incredible song. It Least is. of all for rhyming Corcoran with Japan. <laughs> That's right. Uh, we should mention we have played this song before uh, on the podcast, the Swiss Family Robinson Calypso, written by the Sherman Brothers, Young Shermans, um, yeah. and the Proto Tiki Room song. So it went on to become the... Tiki Room song. Uh, so crazy. But this Humble is... Humble beginnings. <laughs> right. This is from the Disneyland TV show Escape to Paradise, which is an incredible uh, documentary on how they made this movie, uh, including a lot of great Moochie footage. So there's, uh, you know, as he's taking his lesson, he's pouting, and then he goes and runs and jumps into the, uh, to the ocean and, you know, wrestles with an elephant and... Uh, throws Haley Mills in the water. So a lot of hijinks. Where where Michi goes, hijinks follow. That's What's right. crazy to me about all this, and you know, you talked about setting up this studio and all this stuff that they did. I mean, this area was on the border of, I, I mean, a, a place where people lived. It wasn't out in the far-flung jungle. Like you said, the tree was on the border of a cricket field. But man, you can't tell it from the movie. In the movie, it looks like they are in the middle of absolutely nowhere that's right that's right we, we see a lot of animals in this clip and the animals were a major part of this movie in fact hundreds of animals were brought in for the filming and a zoo was constructed to house them all uh, a crew would build a wrecked ship set and hand carry items to it that were also brought in from europe and the states and beyond and here you go michael tobagoans were paid to have their buildings painted green to camouflage them and maintain the illusion of a deserted island that is crazy. So, yeah, you cannot tell at all that there's any buildings there. But evidently, there were a lot in the shots, and they just painted them green. <laughs> Go away green, That's put right. to use early That's on, right. man. Yeah. Pretty impressive. Over 300 crew members would work on shooting for six months, leading to some ill temper on behalf of the British crew, uh, which was documented in several places. So I wonder how that manifested itself. <laughs> That's weird. Um, I was like, tell them about the the British. That's right. (laughs) And various hazards experienced by the cast, most notably James MacArthur spending days in a swamp wrestling a real anaconda named Old Sam, who was around 20 feet long and 240 pounds. Now, we had, uh, on our other podcast, the Midfield College Film Society, uh, we had watched with Stanley Robinson. Um, That is a real snake, Michael. Yes. I was about to say, the last time I watched this, which, which was for the podcast, you know, when you're a kid, everything is everything is either, it's just movies. So, you know, it could be real, it could be fake, no big deal, just whatever. When you're watching it as an adult, you're like, oh, well, this is clearly going to be a fake snake. But man, he's fighting that snake and it's, you know, its tongue would come out and it would move. And I'm like, that's, no animatro- that's not an animatronic. Clearly, that is a real snake and it is enormous yeah it was a big boy Uh, they would sedate it a little bit and then put it in with him and he said that it would curl around him and you know snakes need to breathe so they said all you have to do is put its head under the water and it would uncurl (laughs) good grief and then it would uh, start trying to escape every all the time obviously i mean that makes sense and uh 
it would take a crew of like 10 people to get it back out from the mangroves. <laughs> I mean, just a nightmare. <laughs> a different time. Well, different and the other time. thing about it is, like you say, you know, you can tell in the movie, you're like, if there's going to be a real snake, well, it'll clearly be a stunt person. But nope. Yeah. James MacArthur, man, out there in the swamp. Yeah. And he's like, chest deep in water doing this too oh yeah and they were out there all of the you know him tommy kurt and roberta were out there uh janet monroe were out there for days just in that swamp and it is not a like inviting looking swamp either no no jeez uh for kevin corcoran true peril almost came when he was cavorting with this baby elephant that was a partner of his through the movie and outside of the movie in the ocean uh, when the o- elephant got lifted on a wave, its foot trapped Corcoran's head in the soft sand. So its head was, his head was under the elephant's foot. Oh, God. And Corcoran was delivered by another wave that lifted the elephant back up. But we almost lost Moochie, Michael. That would, uh, of all the perils of filmdom, putting Moochie at risk. Seriously. But my hijinks are... Hijinks can They're dangerous, know, man. Dangerous. dangerous. Uh, during filming, a hurricane came through and delayed the shoots and wrecked sets. And we see some footage of that in the Disneyland TV show of a terrible storm coming through and the crew having to bail water out of the raft to save it. Uh, the crew spent two weeks filming the scene where the family brings the animals to shore from the shipwreck on their raft, which just sounds like a nightmare. <laughs> Yeah, that's another scene that when we watched it for the podcast, I was like, yeah, these are not stunt people, and this looks really dangerous. Don't put Dorothy McGuire out there on the raft. Don't put Dorothy McGuire (laughs) in danger. Like with rocks on each side and like dogs swimming in the water, it's nuts. Uh, Locals caught a sea turtle, and the crew attached the turtle via a fiberglass pan to the raft to create an illusion that the turtle was hauling the raft into shore, when in reality, it was connected to a truck. (laughs) And as if it wasn't enough to almost drown the dogs in the scene, like you were saying, Michael, Walt insisted that the dogs make real contact with a tiger in a fight scene to make it more realistic, and it is realistic. (laughs) Yes, it is. This is answering many of my questions from when I watched the movie, as in... Wow, it really looks like those dogs are really fighting a tiger. Right. And sure enough. <laughs> and they were. They were. Uh, also realistic was the danger of the tiger in the pit that Moochie had fashioned for him. By the way, I feel fine now just calling him Moochie because in an interview, Ken Anakin was calling him Moochie, and that wasn't even his name in the film or his name in real life. So <laughs> he's just Moochie. Uh, Moochie dug the fire pit or the tiger pit for the tiger and the tiger jumped out of the pit in a fit of anger in real life. So yikes. Yeah. Uh, Tommy Kirk braved terrible bug bites, but John Mills enjoyed the set more than any location he had ever filmed on and brought his family down to enjoy it. Of course you could be like Sesu Hayokawa and hire two ladies to fan you off between takes, but everyone had their strategies. Hey, sounds good. So made a big, uh, Big impression on James MacArthur. (laughs) I'm sure. Uh, Eventually, with the filming done, the crew would say goodbye to Tobago and await the release of the film. Composer William Alwyn, who had worked with Anakin and Disney on Third Man on the Mountain, both great scores, he provided an incredible soundtrack, 
and was aided by younger musicians Buddy Baker, who wrote the song Swiss Kapoka, and Terry Gilkison, who wrote the stunning song My Heart Was an Island, which I don't think gets the credit it deserves. That's a really good song. Yeah, that's an obscurity, but it is a good one. Gilkison would go on to do The Bare Necessities, a bunch of great, great work. Mm-hmm. Another thing I think is completely incredible is that when the crew returned, they realized that none of the dialogue recording was going to work, and the whole movie was dubbed in England at Pinewood Studios, which I have never even thought about when I watched it. That is shocking to me. That would have been a lot of work to make it, it that would have realistic. had to have been. Can you imagine how irritating that must have been? I can be imagine. Like, well, now we have to do this. <laughs> that would just be terrible. Uh, but... I mean, the fact that, uh, you know, a lot of movies of these era, this era and even a lot of Disney movies have just kind of weird ADR things going on. Mm-hmm, and you can never mm-hmm. tell why it was that way. But in this movie, I don't remember ever noticing anything no. that seemed phony. I mean, that's incredible. Just yeah. the, the whole movie. <laughs> it's nuts. The film was released on December 10th, 1960. And though it had a massive budget of $4.5 million, it would make $8.1 million in its first U.S. release alone and go on to make $40 million, making it the biggest release of the year, a major hit for the studio. A natural extension was to bring the treehouse to Disneyland, and sure enough, in 1962, the Swiss Family Robinson Treehouse opened in Disneyland as part of a reimagining of Adventureland. Uh, This is when the Jungle Cruise was changed to be more comical, adding in some of the Mark Davis scenes. Uh, The boathouse was also changed, and the treehouse lay atop what used to be where the Jungle Cruise River met up with Frontierland's Big River as part of a system that connected the park's water, which I think is really cool, by the way. Yeah, that is very cool. Uh, That system remained, and the Jungle Cruise water was fed into pipes that would empty into the Big River. So, still there. Uh, the treehouse was built for a budget of $255,000. Uh, $30,000 would be spent on the 300000 handmade final leaves. Uh, Bill Martin would oversee the building of the 150-ton tree, which was 70 feet tall, 80 feet wide, and about as much as anything I can think of feels like you are really in this movie. It's, yeah, it really does. It's just so well done. Uh, molds were made of real trees to capture knots and texture of bark uh, props were brought in to replicate these in the movies and buddy baker's swiss capulca is ever present giving it life well beyond the movie itself um you know it, it barely features in the movie but it's become an institution in yes it is i mean it makes it on the you know real park soundtracks and everything that's right uh, the treehouse opened in disneyland on november 18 1962 John Mills and family, including his daughter Haley, were on hand to dedicate the tree, along with delegations of children from Switzerland and the West Indies, and even the Swiss consulate attended and presented Walt with a Swiss flag to fly above the attraction. Also in attendance were an ostrich and a much more mature-looking Kevin Corcoran, who toured the facility with Walt, who seemed in particularly good spirits. Uh, by the time Walt Disney World was being planned, the Swiss Family Treehouse was an early entry into the menu and planned, like most of the other attractions, on a larger scale. Though the attraction was more or less the same, it was set back into the land and placed on an island, which, as we mentioned, had the swan boats circling it. 
There are a few grand renderings of what was referred to as the Swiss Family Isle, and great footage exists of it in its opening state in the film The Magic of Walt Disney World. It was fairly stunning with the waterfalls running down to the river and beautiful landscaping on the island. It really resembled the film. Yeah, it it's a tough call because usually, you know, as Walt famously said, the parks grow more beautiful as the landscaping grows in. But this is one case where, I mean, the landscaping is definitely more lush and makes it look more authentic. But you miss a lot of details of all the effort they went into crafting all these waterfalls and all this crazy amount of detail down through there. Right, right. Uh, luckily, most of this attraction is preserved in Orlando. It's And it would go on to be replicated around the world. Now, this is, uh, you know, the rare thing where they, you know, you can still go and see kind of an opening day thing. Mm-hmm. Um, now, the movie would be re-released through the years and now enjoys a home on Disney Plus alongside another version. At some point along the way, the studio bought the rights to the 1940. RKO movie, as we mentioned at the beginning, that inspired Walt and Bill Anderson to produce a version of their own. It had no releases of any kind through the years, but when Disney Plus came along, sure enough, there was a 1940 version available for watching in comparison. This really confused me when I first searched through the Disney Plus offerings. <laughs> and me too, because first I'd never heard of it, because as you say, uh, Disney just buried it because they wanted their version to be the version. And it was kind of a forgotten movie, but I, when I saw it first on Disney Plus, I thought, oh, it's something that they got in the Fox. It's obviously a Fox movie that they picked up in the Fox thing, like Sound of Music or like Journey to the Center of the Earth or those random things they have on there. But then I was like, no, it's it's RKO. So it it was another acquisition from a long distant past. I mean that's some serious knowledge to know that you have that in the catalog. Somebody was just somebody in the in the Disney offices was like, "Why can't we release the RKO Swiss Family Robinson?" <laughs> yeah, that's one thing that really befuddled me. Was like, how did they even know that they had that? Right. Like, who who some had those knowledge. reels in hand? Yeah, Absolutely. Right. Well, as for the real star of the film, the Saman tree that housed the film version of the Treehouse still lives to this day. Uh, originally, the locals requested Disney leave the set as it was so that it could be turned into a tourist attraction, but a hurricane came along quickly and destroyed most of the set in short order. Today, it humbly exists at the site of an auto repair shop, this tree which once lay at the edge of a cricket field and would go on to inspire so many artificial copies built around the world. My heart was an island on a stormy sea Till my golden ship of dreams came to me The dark clouds were scattered And the day grew bright Filled with the wondrous joy that love brings to light so when you are lonely under stormy skies above your heart will be an island till you find someone to love my heart 
an island on a stormy sea Till you found my heart and gave your love to me If you're listening to this podcast, you're probably aware of the significance of Main Street windows. Ever since Disneyland opened in 1955, the creative personnel behind Disney parks have received credit by having their names painted on the upper story shop windows of Main Street USA, usually with a sly in-joke alluding to their role on the parks or their own personality or hobbies. But even outside of Main Street, there are a select few who have earned mention in other parts of the park. Some of these placemaking references are to fictional or historical characters, such as Davy Crockett or Texas John Slaughter, but others are to real people. In Adventureland at Disneyland, for instance, one might notice a large window advertising the services of a Professor Harper Goff, who apparently offers oriental tattooing and banjo lessons. Goff was a real person, of course, and although he only officially worked at Disney for a short time, he cast an outsized shadow upon the company's history, and especially on its signature Adventureland offerings. Ralph Harper Goff was born in Fort Collins, Colorado in 1911. His family moved to Santa Ana, California when he was a teenager, and like many Disney legends, he would attend the Chouinard Art Academy in Los Angeles one of the schools that many years later Walt Disney would help incorporate into Cal Arts. Golf started at Warner Brothers in 1935 as an illustrator and continuity sketch artist and worked his way up over the years to the position of art director. His first project was A Midsummer Night's Dream, and through his time at Warner's he did uncredited set design work for films like Captain Blood with Errol Flynn, Sergeant York, and Casablanca, uh, those last two being two of my favorites. Yeah, man. Good work, Harper. I mean, yeah, when you've got Casablanca as you know, you're on your resume, that's pretty good. That's right. During World War II, Golf began doing camouflage for the Douglas Aircraft Plant to protect it from any potential aerial raids from Japan, which was a major fear on the West Coast at the time. In fact, he wrote several articles about the painting of camouflage to disguise factories. In the process, he became friends with Donald Douglas himself, and Harper was commissioned to create some paintings of Douglas aircraft for Douglas's personal use. Some of these were reprinted in magazines, which caught the eye of an agent in New York who contacted Goff and signed him to become a magazine illustrator. Over the next few years, he did freelance illustration for magazines like Collier's, Coronet, and Esquire. He specialized in illustrations of automobile races and vintage aircraft, which magazines would print on the backsides of large gatefold illustrations of nudes. All very classy, <laughs> of course. I just want a, a subscription to Coronet magazine. I don't know what it I is, know. but it sounds classy. They make paper products and fine, fancy magazines right. with, uh, <laughs> I guess, centerfolds and car race pictures. 
Uh, golf was a train nut. And on a vacation with his wife, Flossie, to England in 1951, he made a stop at Bassett Loke, which was a London company which made and sold miniature steam trains and other train-related antiques. There he found an engine that he really liked. But when he tried to buy it, the clerk said that another customer had been thinking about buying that specific piece and would be coming back later that afternoon to make his decision. The clerk said that if the other customer decided not to buy the item, Goff could have it. When Goff returned to the store later that afternoon, the other interested customer was there buying the train. The other customer was, of course, Walt Disney, who at that time was operating his own private miniature steam railway, the Carrollwood Pacific, in the backyard of his home in Holmby Hills. Goff was surprised to run into Walt, naturally, especially when Walt introduced himself and said, I have trains. Do you have trains? <laughs> this struck up a conversation about their love of trains and Goff's career in the movie business. Goff said later that Walt had told him that he recognized Goff's name from somewhere, but he couldn't place it. Goff couldn't believe that Walt would ever have heard of him in any capacity, despite the fact that they had met previously in passing. Goff was a friend of the legendary Disney animator Ward Kimball, one of Walt's nine old men. And uh, Goff played banjo with Kimball's Dixieland jazz band, the Firehouse 5 Plus 2. In that capacity, he had visited the Disney studio several times to perform, and had also encountered Walt at Kimball's house, where Kimball kept a full-size locomotive set up, the Grizzly Flats Railroad. I'll point out that uh, I always thought that it was a backyard railroad like Walt's. And it was a backyard railroad, but he had a full-size train. Right. Which is Ward Kimball had like an actual train in his backyard. Ward his goes lot. all the way. I, I love yeah. this story of them meeting. I, I just can't imagine. You know, Walt is such an interesting guy where he remembers so many things. But uh, I just want to point out that I just have a working theory about Walt's complicated opinion of the firehouse five plus two that it must have been a you know really nuanced that you know he thinks that they're loafing playing music but uh he probably liked the music so oh yeah (laughs) i don't know totally well i mean he had satchmo at disneyland all the time playing dixieland so you know he was into it that's right but uh i i have trains do you have trains I want to go to this train store. I know. This train gosh. store sounds like where it's at. Like Probably, rainy yeah. London in 1951, this like fancy train store. Oh, Come man. on. Come on. For real. Uh, back in London, Goff and his wife were invited out to dinner with Walt and his go-to film producer, Bill Walsh. They dined at a posh club. Apparently, it was someplace that used to be owned by the Rothschilds. So it was now a gambling club. Uh, despite the fact that none of them had the fancy dress required by the establishment, including Walt, uh, Walt's name was enough to get them into the door and seated at a prominent table convenient to the dance floor. As they chatted, Bill Walsh realized that he knew Goff's work, pointing out that he was the fellow who had done the illustrations on the back of the nudes in Esquire. <laughs> to this, Walt replied that that is how he knew Goff's name. As Goff later recounted, Walt said, I'm probably the only man that takes those nudes out of the magazines and pins them up backwards with the nudes to the wall. I've got all your pictures. <laughs> Jeff, I'm picturing Walt in his bedroom with like a bunch of car race and airplane pictures taped to the wall. <laughs> oh, man. 
sounds more like a uh, Bob Gurr story than a Walt Disney story. That's wild, yeah. <laughs> yes, yeah, it does. Wowee, this race car picture is... <laughs> Lily, look at this race car. <laughs> Walt, what are you looking at? <laughs> oh, oh, man, that incredible. story killed me. So yeah. good. In any case, Walt tells Goff to drop by the studio when he's back in the U.S. because he wants Goff to work for him. Some time passes, but eventually Goff drops by. Uh, this was an era when Walt was preparing to branch out into full-fledged live-action filmmaking, and he needed people with Goff's skills. He was also considering a new, very different project, and that is what he showed Goff first. At the time, Walt was working on a very odd little side project that he called Disneylandia, a project that Goff referred to in interviews as Walt Disney's America, or Americana. Perhaps Goff's interest in miniature trains is what caused Walt to bring him in on this project, a concept that involved both miniatures and trains. While we'll save the full story of Disneylandia for another day, this was basically a traveling exhibition that Walt wanted to create that would include 24 Norman Rockwell-type settings that would guide visitors from the discovery of America to the modern day. The dioramas would travel the country in Disney's own private railroad cars, and people would come to the train, enter through the rear, and walk the entire length of the train looking at these little animated miniature vignettes as they went. Jeff, what is it with train exhibitions? This reminds me of that bicentennial thing that you found online. <laughs> yes, the Freedom Train. Uh, man, yeah. I, I think this would have been cool, but you know, it's it's weird. Sometimes if you really play it out, uh, you can see that in the end, the you know maybe Disneyland would have gotten built in the way it was if this would have started out early. Uh, but it is kind of also bizarre. Yeah, I, I also love miniatures and dioramas, so don't get, yeah count, don't count me out of this. But yeah, I, I guess we're just too far removed from the train being a big deal in our part of the country to understand a traveling train exhibition, right? I'm all down yeah. for it, yeah. Yeah, well, even then it was a problem. They didn't have the sightings needed in even big cities to accommodate, you know, this huge, it would have been a really long train to pull in and just sit there and have people come. And so cities were like, oh, we'll build you a special track, Mr. Disney, and, you know, charge you a special rate for it. And so there were lots of weird logistics, but... You know, it reminds me of the Musée Mechanique out in San Francisco, those weird little dioramas they have of, like, Custer's Last Stand where you put, a right. like, a quarter in and the wind will blow and something will happen. <laughs> and it would just have been weird little scenes like that. It's very Nickelodeon slash Penny Arcade style. I mean, the, the real, like you said, we're going to talk about it later, but I think the real amazing thing is how – how much Walt was involved in this building some of this stuff himself. I mean, it's... Yeah, this was his, like, hands-on hobby. Yeah. Uh, and again, if you go to the Disney Family Museum, again, in San Francisco, you know, he was obsessed with miniatures and had all these little miniature things that he had kind of created and whittled and done and just kind of had around the house. Right, so, right. Yeah, it was, it was his, really his hobby. Three test dioramas were built for this project by a small team of proto-imagineers before, as I mentioned, it was realized that the project would face numerous logistical and financial challenges due to the nature of the rail system at that time. Of the scenes that were built, Golf thought up the idea of the barbershop quartet vignette, and he made the first conceptual model for the other imagineers to build on. 
He also designed a miniature newspaper office where men were seen printing a paper. Even Goff's wife got in on the act, creating the costumes for the barbershop quartet figures and the famous dancing man figure based on Buddy Ebsen. Very, very iconic work. Uh, yes, yes. I just wish I could have seen this real thing, but anyway. Yeah. While Disneylandia would eventually evolve into Disneyland, there was another project that Walt had assigned Goff to work on at the same time. Remember that at the time, Walt was knee-deep in the True Life Adventure series of films, and in the process had come across the work of a Dr. McGinnity at Caltech Oceanographic, who had shot some innovative footage to show what could be done with underwater photography. Apparently, these were some new and exciting techniques, and Walt wanted to see how they could be used for his own films. Here, Goff's story diverges. He tells slightly different stories in interviews, and those two narratives have both been repeated over the years, so it's hard to tell which is accurate, although one seems more reasonable to me personally than the other. Uh, one of the stories is that Walt had always wanted to do an animated version of 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea and thought that McGinnity's technology could be used to film underwater footage for background shots or inserts. The other story is that Walt wanted Goff to work on a new true life adventure film that would use the technology to film whales and other underwater life, a film that would be called 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, although it would not be based on the Jules Verne novel. It would just be a standard nature documentary feature. I tend to think this is the more likely of the two stories. What do you think? Uh, probably true. Yeah. I mean... Gosh, it's hard to tell. You know, a lot of this development stuff that you see of Walt Disney, it's like, did he want this to be animated or not is always a question. Um, you, know, you go back to Alice in Wonderland in a previous episode. So it's hard to know. Yeah. But you got to think with uh, where he was at that the, the latter is true. Yeah, it just seems weird that he would be excited about this new live action filming technique for True Life Adventures and say, we're going to use it for an animated project. That doesn't right, make right. Like the way he tells it in the interview with the True Life, where it's specifically True Life Adventures, makes more sense to me. But yeah, uh, maybe we'll find out someday. In any case, uh, Walt had to return to Europe for business and left Goff with instructions to work both on Disneylandia and the underwater photography. Goff, however, had been obsessed as a child with the silent film version of 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, and instead of storyboarding either an animated or documentary film, whichever those Walt wanted, he did a conceptual artwork for a live-action retelling of Fern's story. Whatever Walt had asked for, this was decidedly not it, and he kind of flipped out when he returned from his long trip and just random artists around the studio started asking him if he was really going to make an epic live-action adaptation of 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. <laughs> They're like, Walt, are you really going to do that? And he's like, what are you talking about? <laughs> so, uh, yeah, Goff was on the naughty list. Uh, major at, eyebrow. The start. Major eyebrow, yeah. As mad as Walt was... Uh, for ignoring his instructions, Goff says that he would occasionally catch Walt staring at the storyboards which Goff had <laughs> created for the feature. Eventually, Goff got called to Walt's office. Uh, film exhibitors at the time were desperate for more Disney content, but it took too long to make animated films to keep the pipeline to theaters going. This meant that Disney needed to get into live-action filmmaking in a big way. Walt had Goff do storyboards for a feature he wanted to make, The Great Locomotive Chase, which would be his first big film produced in America, if he made it. But when boards for potential feature films were shown to exhibitors, they overwhelmingly voted for 20,000 Leagues as the project they'd most like to see. Well, finally, Walt relented, and he greenlit the picture. 
And uh, of course, later he that decade he did make the great locomotive chase which is a fun film but 20,000 leagues was the first for the film golf acted as art director and production designer crafting set designs and creating the iconic nautilus submarine he even had a cameo in the film as a minister in the san francisco scenes uh, jeff we'll get deep into 20k some other time but this guy's designs were out of control oh my gosh i mean what an unbelievable job he did in a timeless design that is, you know, lives down through through now as just a great looking thing. Uh, going back a little bit, I, you know, Walt obviously was the dreamer, all this and that, but he also, I feel, was, was like self-deprecating at times and kind of had, I, I just wonder if like he thought they could pull it off with the live action at that point because they, they had done stuff that was impressive but i mean this is a whole quantum leap well a lot of the interviews that i read with golf were uh, talking about how walt was super nervous about 20 uh, 20,000 leagues because i mean they had to build sound stages for the movie because they had right. not i mean they had shot you know the host segments for fantasia and they right. had done reluctant dragon and had done a few things, but nothing at this scale. So they had to build whole new sound stages. And Walt, at some point, told him, "You know, everything I've got is tied up in this movie, so it better do well." So is, yeah, he was <laughs> definitely antsy. Just the age-old Walt thing of everything I got tied up is riding on this one thing, and it ends up working exactly. Out. Yeah, yeah, and it was all on Harper Goff's head <laughs> that it better work because he'd kind of tricked him into it. But yeah, I mean, how did he come up with these designs? It's just incredible. Just it's I mean, he like invented what we today call steampunk right, pretty much right. just by himself. Yeah. It's it's wild. Once 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea was in the can, Goff could return his attentions to Disneylandia. Goff and his wife were sent around the country in 1954, scoping out other parks and attractions in order to get an idea of how their business operations were carried out. This entailed everything from seeing how many bathrooms were needed to how big a parking lot was required. They looked at how bad a problem crime could be in amusement parks and analyzed how many people would come per car. They visited everywhere from Williamsburg and Mount Vernon to Coney Island and Palisades Park. They went up and down the East Coast from New York to Florida. They visited everywhere. Goff even returned to his hometown in Colorado for inspiration for a series of sketches he did for Main Street USA. The Fort Collins influence can be felt today still on Main Street, especially in the designs of City Hall and the bank, which are pulled pretty much straight from Fort Collins. I just imagine what Flossie Goff thought of this trip to go see oh. how many bathrooms needed to be built at Palisades Park. I was just going to say, it's a trip, you know, that's what makes me really jealous of the Imagineering lifestyle, these research trips. Yeah, <laughs> that, yeah, no kidding. While golf had influence across the planning of all of Disneyland, his greatest impact can be felt in Adventureland. It was golf who created the overall conceptual rendering for the land, giving it a jungle outpost feel and blending in a number of diverse styles from around the world. Once design work for Disneyland was underway, Walt decided that he wanted a boat ride to go along with his already planned train ride. One early concept included a boat cruise down famous American rivers, the River of Romance, mm. which, yeah, which would include nods to the Suwannee River and the Everglades. 
in the original Disneyland prospectus, which was famously pitched to businessmen in New York, it was put this way, quote, a river borders the edge of true life adventure land where you embark in a colorful explorer's boat with a native guide for a cruise down the river of romance. As you glide through the Everglades past birds and animals living in their natural habitat, alligators lurk along the banks and otters and turtles play in the water about you. Monkeys chatter in the orchid flowered trees. <laughs> This sounds kind of like uh, early Disney World copy for like Discovery Island or something. <laughs> yes. yeah. Why or is it like... called the River of Romance? <laughs> I don't know. That seems unnecessary. The River of Romance. Yeah, just... it was going to be like their version of the Tunnel of Love or yeah, something. Sure, I don't sure. know. The just River of Romance does not seem like something Walt would sign off on. But I guess <laughs> no. Well, it's funny to me that it was like. You know, this was like one of the few bits of info being given to like the investors. So it was like right up front there. Come uh, see the monkeys chatter and the otters. Oh yeah, I want otters. I want otters. Yeah, yeah. Uh, this idea, the river of romance, had been heavily influenced by John Huston's *The African Queen*, film, which was a favorite of golf's. In the film, Humphrey Bogart and Catherine Hepburn travel through the wilds of Africa in a small boat. And along the way, they see lots of wildlife along the shores of the river. Golf wanted to recreate that experience in Disneyland. Adventureland had originally been designed with a large lake featuring an island in the middle. Boats were planned to go out to this island and circle around it so that guests could see animals on the shore. Golf pointed out to Walt that in this layout, all the show would be on one side of the boat, so people would always have to be looking over the riders on the left side of the vehicle. Golf proposed that the boats enter a river on the island so that people on both sides could see the wildlife clearly, and Walt agreed. Then came the problem of time. Walt wanted guests to have a nice long experience on the boat ride and had a very specific idea of how much of the show's ride time should be devoted to show scenes. He really wanted people to get their money's worth, but there was a problem. The time the boats spent going to and from the proposed island cost valuable minutes. They were losing time going to and from the dock, and Walt balked at Goff's proposal to have the boat speeding back and forth between the island at top <laughs> speed. No fast boats in the park, said Walt. Uh, only, only slow boats. So Goff ditched the idea of an island and worked on a longer ride where guests would embark on the river immediately and then wind up back in the same place where they started when the river was done. What very risk averse on the speedy boats. Yeah, no speedy boats. Uh, no wake zone. I, you know, I, the more I, I have not considered Jungle Cruise in a long time. And the layout of Jungle Cruise is brilliant. How they make a ton of space and a little space. Yes. Especially once you have been to Disneyland and realize how small Disneyland is and what they were able to do is right. incredible. Right. Yeah. Walt's original plan for this attraction had been to have live animals throughout. And, of course, this was another thing that Goff talked him out of. Goff had been in real jungles himself, and he said he found them boring. He knew the animals would sleep during the day and certainly wouldn't perform on cue. He eventually talked Walt into letting him create what Goff called a Hollywood jungle, one that had wildlife that would really put on a show for guests. 
One of Walt's and Golf's early notions for the park had been for a submarine ride. But eventually they decided to delay that for a later phase, as it would have been extremely costly to build the necessary filtration infrastructure for the lagoon, which the sub would require. But while the submarine ride was deferred, it would eventually open in 1959, Golf realized that they could use the technology that they had developed to operate the giant squid in 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea to create simple animal figures for this new Tropical Rivers of the World ride. Goff knew that they had the ability to create aquatic animals that would rise just above the surface or to build larger animals whose heads could poke out from underneath the undergrowth. In both cases, the heads could be animated while the required mechanisms to operate them would be concealed underwater or behind plants. I just like how everything ties together conceptually from like one project to the next. Right. I mean, they're just so good at using that knowledge and, uh, and, it, and again, it's like, I, I used to roll my eyes that the good ideas never die, but it really is true that they're, I mean, you know, they're thinking about a sub project and, uh, you know, it goes to be a sub project in 1959, but really in 1971, when they build 20,000 leagues, it kind of comes really full circle. Yeah. They actually get their right, squid right, in a way, right. in a way. Uh, golf had an enormous impact on every aspect of the Jungle Cruise. Architects had been brought in to build the project, but the architects couldn't agree on things, and that made Walt mad. They wanted specifics about how the project should be laid out and built that Wed couldn't provide, and there was a lot of dissatisfaction. Wed didn't know how to build the ride, as they didn't know how fast the boats would be able to go or what the clearance needs would be for turns in the river. Eventually, Goff brought a huge table to the site and had a giant sandbox set up where he and others could play with potential layouts and figure things out on the ground. He had someone build him what he called his jungle jeep, a jeep overlaid with a framework that matched what they thought the size of the boats would need to be to get the capacity which they desired. Eventually, decisions about the layout of the Jungle Cruise were made by Goff taking out his Jungle Jeep and marking things out on the ground. When contractors would come in with their heavy equipment to dig the river, Goff would take his Jeep out and drive around to see how much space was needed for clearance, and then simply put stakes in the ground for where the river should turn. This is a really a prime case of how times have changed <laughs> in the industry. Yes, although I'm sure this drove uh, the people around him, you know, the engineers and everything absolutely nuts but uh oh yeah man i want that jungle jeep it looks so cool yeah it is uh, yeah it's, it's great prime. it's like something you would have in like like the fort wilderness uh golf cart parades or something yeah. just this jeep with the boat laid over it yeah it's so yeah. good uh, golf affected the landscaping of the ride as well. Walt wanted real trees on the ride and was worried when landscapers had only managed to put out saplings in buckets. He complained to golf who brought in Bill Evans and his firm of Evans and Reeves to lead the landscaping effort. This was a huge deal, as we shall see later in this episode. Golf also designed and named the famous Schweitzer Falls, a Jungle Cruise icon to this day. Some sort of outcropping was needed to cloak a difference in the levels of soil in that area, so Goff created a model of a waterfall, which was then sculpted on site. Walt was originally concerned as he didn't want people getting wet in the park, but Goff and Sam Hamill, who we talked about in episode 25, designed both the Jungle Cruise boats and the waterfall itself 
so that while people would come close to getting soaked, they wouldn't actually get wet at all. That's another change in the industry. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Oh, man. Golf also designed the ride vehicles themselves, basing them heavily on the ship from the African Queen. Originally, the boats weren't even supposed to have engines. They were planned to be pushed by the river current because Walt was concerned about ensuring gas-powered boats with guests on them. <laughs> Walt was really concerned about boat safety. Apparently... Who hurt you, Walt? Yeah. <laughs> he he was, uh, like, legit afraid of having, like, gasoline on boats yes. that they would, like, explode with guests aboard. So, uh, Harper calmed him down about that, though. Eventually, the vehicles were equipped with gray marine diesel engines. Golf spent a lot of time working on the Jungle Cruise. Here's a funny quote I found from Harriet Burns, which I enjoy. Quote, Harper Golf was a great guy, but crazy as a loon. When Fred, she's talking about Fred Yerger, was sent down to Disneyland prior to the opening, he saw a man sitting in a boat in the load area of the Jungle Cruise. He had a red beard, wind blowing his hair all over, and was playing a banjo. Fred thought, boy, that must be somebody's idiot son. <laughs> it was Harper. Oh, uh, that wow. amuses wow. me. Uh, yeah. All told, Harper was at Disney from 1951 until after the park opened in 1955 when he resumed his freelance ways. He was production designer for the Vikings with Kirk Douglas in 1958 and famously art-directed Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory in 1971. Oh, that's amazing. Uh, yeah. My favorite outside of Disney thing he did was work on the uh, the guy, Judge Roy Hoffines, who built the Astrodome. He built these suites for him, like a penthouse for him, which is wild, in, uh, in Houston, right? In yeah, the, it's like crazy, like circus themed, right? Is yes, right? yes, but circus and more. I mean, it's just like crazy, weird, late 60s fantasy uh, circus overlay. <laughs> it's it's super wild, yeah. yeah, in the Astrodome because, yeah, circus plus space, right. I guess. Why not? Why not? Yeah, I guess his Willy, I'm sure his influence on Willy Wonka is the reason a lot of people think it's a Disney movie. Yes. It sure looks like one. It's also yeah. amazing art direction, yes. Goff came back to Disney in 1975 as Imagineering began to work on World Showcase, and it is he who we have to thank for the final form of that area's design. As many of you might know, the original concept for World Showcase looked like a fancy modern shopping mall of the period with symmetrical concrete buildings housing the international pavilions. Each pavilion would be housed in a pie-shaped wedge inside the larger buildings. Goff didn't like this and designed a concept whereby each pavilion would be instantly visually recognizable as the signature traditional architecture of each nation. He situated these highly themed pavilions around a central lagoon. Management frowned on this idea at first for some reason, but golf smartly played the long game. Whenever potential sponsors or other corporate types came around the wet offices, golf would leave his lavish renderings of the World Showcase Lagoon sitting prominently around the workspace. These naturally caught the eyes of observers, and eventually management opted to go along with golf's vision. Uh, eventually, golf would contribute to the design of a number of pavilions including the Japan, Italy, and United Kingdom showcases 
I mean, he basically invented World Showcase as we know it. Yeah, I mean, that's something where hindsight is twenty twenty. It's like, I can't imagine it any other way. And why anybody would think it should be any other way. I guess, I mean, budget would be the only reason. But yeah, it's it's just so cool how many people come back into Disney or have their last lap for Epcot. I think that's really what makes it such a special park. Uh, you know, all these people kind of writing their love letter to Walt in a way. Uh, and it's in really different ways, but you know, he had been gone for so long. Right. And, uh, to have him come and do such a big thing for Epcot is, is very cool. It really is remarkable how many people this was their sort of big last hurrah and they brought back everybody. It seems like they could find so many people who had just once worked for Disney and then they came back to do this and may, I mean, man made a huge impact. He, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I think it was Tony Baxter who I heard first tell this story about how he kind of did the trickaroo in getting his vision achieved. And I think he might've done the same thing. I think Tony Baxter said the same thing about the Nautilus at first, cause they wanted huh. it to be a very like cylindrical cigar shaped submarine. And he wanted this very fancy thing, and they're like, no, no, no. So he just keeps leaving these paintings <laughs> around, and eventually somebody's like, okay, fine. Uh, Harper Golf passed away in 1993 and was named a Disney legend later that year. feast the other night (sighs) well not to go on maleficent but why wasn't i invited i know i really should have planned it around uh you coming to north carolina i didn't i wasn't in my right mind (laughs) no this sounds i am envious because this uh, when you tell me what you were gonna do i thought that sounds amazing it's uh, something we can recreate at any time. Now I'm proficient, but uh, I have a little clip of uh, us making it with my loyal sous chef. I'll play that and then we'll come back and talk about it. We're going to make a tropical feast today for some friends. We're going to be using some recipes from the Polynesian Hotel and the Adventureland Veranda. And we're going to be cooking some polynesian ribs now have you ever had ribs before i think not you don't know what ribs are but you know what your ribs are right uh and also um in the report with us we have um some dinosaur bias yeah 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 Yeah. and so we're gonna make making some citrus rice with oranges and lemons and some green beans which i know you love 
No, I don't. I hate. Oh, no. Well, hate's a strong word, but uh, I guess you're going to be helping me make them anyway. Yeah. Okay. Okay, we're back, and we have a recording dinosaur. Are you sure you can hear them? Oh. Ribs. Is that one from your body? From my body? No, from somebody else's body. Pig's body. Oh. Well, that's cool. So, we have... We're getting ready. Yug, yug, green beans. We are bringing uh orange and a lemon over here. I wonder why. Okay. Okay, now we're gonna get a potato peeler. Potato peel. Well, he's cutting up this off the skin of the orange. What are we gonna do with the lemon, Daddy? Same thing. We'll take the skin, cut it off, slice it up, put it into the rice, which is a little kooky. Ha ha! That's silly. I need to go outside. Oh, this is another thing you can do. They're coming, Daddy. But you're not, you don't, never allow me to use scissors. Go cut me off uh, four of those. Four of these? Yeah, all the way at the bottom. Uh, here, do this one. All right, we got green onions from the yard. John Watts cut. Okay, I'm back. We're taking a long time, Daddy, see? Green onion, done. So let's see here. Celery, two thirds of a cup. Can I help you do this part? Yes, you can. I'm gonna do the cutting, but you can help with the measurement. It's right there, that one, two thirds. So I'll hand you this celery as I cut it. You can tell me when we have enough. It says two, two, three. We have one tree. Still one tree. Still one tree. So it's a few days later. Uh, you kind of had to stop cooking with me because you were sick that day. Uh, you didn't feel really great, did you? Yeah, and I, I, I still have it today, I think. Yeah. Um, now, unfortunately, you didn't. You were. You felt so bad. You didn't even feel like eating the meal. So you didn't even get to try the ribs. Or the rice, or the green beans. Uh, well, I know you wouldn't have liked the green beans, but uh, what do you think the ribs would have tasted like? Mm, kind of good and kind of bad. Oh, okay. I was really surprised because I thought you were going to want to be like a dinosaur and eat the ribs. 
Mm. But, uh, but you didn't. Yeah. Did you like the music that we played while we ate? Yes. Yeah. And you like oranges. No. Oh, well, I guess this meal just wasn't for you. It's not like the cornbread was, was it? No. Are you going to give it two thumbs down? Mm, probably one up and one down. Okay. Well, that's it from our test kitchen here today. Uh, signing off, I'm Jeff Crawford. And I am John Watts Crawford. So, we're signing off. Bye. All right. I, I'm, I'm in despair that... Uh, the sous chef was unable to enjoy the the it fruits was a real of your tragedy. Efforts. Yeah, we had to call our friends and call off the evening of festivities, but we still enjoyed it by ourselves. But it was sad. He was he just had a little cold. But in these times, yeah, um, you can't be too a little good. cold. is a big deal. Yeah. Uh, you can enjoy the full luau with all your friends, but uh, break down what what exactly did you make and how was it? Okay, so we had. We, I came upon a recipe uh, from 1973 from Polynesian-style ribs uh, from the Adventureland Veranda, yes. which was a favorite so much so that it had been requested uh, multiple times. And I read the recipe for this, and I was like, this is so bizarre to what I know, which I, I don't cook ribs, but what I know about ribs in that uh, you boil the ribs. So I was like, oh. maybe... I should try this. Uh, so we had that, and we had citrus rice from the Tangaro Terrace, and the, that was from the uh, Cooking Around the World with Mickey book, as was the cocktail that we had, the Howley's Passion, which was also from the Polynesian Resort. And um, there were a lot of bizarre uh, vegetable recipes I found, which maybe I'll make my way around to it, but... I did find a green bean recipe from Ohana more present day. And I felt with the other things that might be a good conservative uh, option. A safe pick. A safe pick. Yes. Yes. I am glad to hear and yet slightly disturbed that was considered as an option. uh, You did not use actually human ribs uh, for your delicious, (laughs) delicious ribs. Yeah, I was nervous because I had never done ribs, and I've got you know some friends who do a lot of ribs, and I had talked to them about it, and they were very skeptical. But man, let me tell you, it was pretty good. Yeah. So so what all so what all went on these what on, went on these ribs? Okay, so you have you know two and a half pounds of pork rib. You throw it in a kind of brine essentially with uh, salt, some ginger powder some bay leaf and, and a whole onion and you boil it for 45 minutes hmm. and then you make the sauce which the sauce is the magic so we're gonna we'll we'll, we'll post this recipe and you got to make the sauce the sauce is amazing it uh has a cup of brown sugar there you go two cups of pineapple juice and uh two teaspoons of soy sauce you put some crushed pineapple in there and the rest of the ginger powder and those green onions that we got from outside. Uh-huh. And that is your sauce. Then when you get it out of the boil, you bake it. Now, this is where the recipe is vague because it says bake until tender. Well, they're tender kind of throughout 
Um, yeah. And I did a little bit of the broiler, which I would say do more of the broiler because uh, the edges were nice and caramelized. And I feel like it could have stayed a few more minutes in the broiler. But man, highly recommend this. The man, the sauce. The sauce is that magic. That sounds pretty good. You can feel yeah. the magic of the veranda flowing oh, yes. through you. I just, I mean, the fact that this was on order, uh, yum. So, but I do want to talk about the citrus rice because that was far more interesting in an outdated type of way, oh, yeah. which I, I celebrated, but not all at the table celebrated. <laughs> Let me tell you about the citrus rice. You make pre-cooked rice. You just cook up some instant rice. Um, you put that aside. Then you get seven tablespoons of butter. Oh, yeah. Michael. Oh, yes. That's, a, that's almost a full stick. <laughs> put that in there in, the, in a pan awesome. with celery, onion, and then you get some orange and lemon peels and dice them up put them in there yeah cook them citrusize yourself man that's right oh boy did we get citrusize you mix in the rice cook that for seven minutes and then you add orange juice and chicken broth oh okay and then you throw it all in the oven and bake it for 15 minutes now this was a dish. Let me tell you, it's it's like a lot of butter with the orange zest, and uh, <laughs> my wife did not like this, and I enjoyed it a lot. Yeah, I was about to say I can uh, see how that could have not gone over well with some parties, but however, it sounds like it would have gone over well with me. That's right. Uh, the green beans were great. They were really simple. I used reused my rib water, so they had a little bit of oh, uh, heck yes. extra yumbo in it. But, um, you know, it's like soy sauce, sugar, just on green beans with onions. But it, it was really good, and garlic. Um, so, man, it just made me realize that I have not been citrusized enough because, you know, we had the cocktails, and those are kind of just a simple you know, rum, pineapple juice, mango juice, and lime. It was all that was in that. But just like spicing things with citrus is is an option. Yes. And, you know, I just felt like refreshed after that meal and just, you know, this was really good. I felt light, even though it wasn't light. <laughs> right. It's like, well, the citrus is light and, and also good for you. That vitamin yeah. C. Uh, this is what Florida citrus growers were talking about. This is the benefits that they were trying to get across to us, and I think it behooves Disney to bring back those benefits into the That's theme right. park. I mean, come on. And yeah, I, I did mention in the uh, recording that we had, uh, I had compiled all the songs that Spotify had on various uh, Adventureland Veranda loops, and we kind of did a a music dinner music to that so very nice it was wonderful wonderful we'll have to do it again sometime but highly recommend uh the ribs and the green beans obviously uh, but you know if you're a fan of outdated recipes try that citrus rice or just maybe use a little less butter if you like citrus it's pretty yummy sounds good to me man
One of the hallmarks of the Adventureland realm is its lush vegetation. And perhaps no one is more responsible for this collection of jungles than Morgan Bill Evans. Bill and his brother Jack had worked with Walt originally on his Holmby Hills home, landscaping the double lot which included the Carrollwood Pacific Scale Railroad a few years prior to Disneyland's opening. Jack and Bill's father, Hugh, had formed the Evans and Reeves Nursery in the 1930s following the stock market crash, before which he was a real estate developer. Hugh had developed a reputation as a pioneer in introducing exotic plants to California from abroad and earned notoriety for his display of the plants in his Santa Monica home. Bill himself had trained to be a geologist at Stanford, but like his father, the stock market would change Bill's career forever after. Jack and Bill worked with Walt on his home in 1952 and were hired shortly thereafter by Walt for the landscaping duties of Disneyland. As Jack and Bill had never taken on a project of this size, Disney would eventually also hire Joseph Lanesh and Ruth Shellhorn, who was brought in to organize guest flow and design, while the brothers would work in moving land and finding plants and trees for the job. Walt was inspired by visits to Tivoli Gardens and had high expectations for the landscaping at Disneyland that it would be year-round spring landscaping with full trees, even if they were out of scale. Uh, Michael, landscaping is such a crucial part of the Disney formula that it really didn't talked enough about as a major contributor. Yeah, you're right. And I feel like this was something that used to be something that got talked about more. They had whole books about the gardens of Walt Disney World mm-hmm. when we were mm-hmm. kids. And, you know, to- there were constant articles about things like topiary in Disney News and right. how the flowers were planted and all this. I feel like it used to be a much bigger thing than it is today. But man, it is such an essential part of the the legacy of the parks. Yeah, it's part of what makes it stand out. You know, you could you could go to Disney World and enjoy the landscaping and get a lot out of it just doing that. Yeah, just looking at uh, the beds and you know how everything's set up and all you know all this work that Evans and his team did many years ago how it's paid off over time. That's right. Uh, the brothers Evans were incredibly resourceful in finding full-grown trees from various places. Of course, there were some on site, particularly a row of eucalyptus trees that were kept between City Hall and the Jungle Cruise. Now, this is part of why it got moved over there. Um, There were also orange groves planted for years before Disney's arrival, and some orange trees were planted upside down by Evans to look more exotic in Disney's first jungle, while others were left to fill out the scenery in more background capacity. And there was a prominent tree that was contractually stipulated to stay on property. The Dominguez palm that was planted in 1896 and lived around where Section C would be in Disneyland's parking lot at the Dominguez family farmhouse, so it got boxed and moved to its current location where it towers over the dock of the Jungle Cruise. It's a big old tree. The Evanses would offer cash to locals to part with mature trees in their yards, but find their real opportunity in this building of the Santa Ana Freeway, where the trees all the way from Los Angeles to Santa Ana were being slated for demolition frequently. Mm. The Evanses would snatch full-grown trees from the mouth of the bulldozer, paying contractors to leave the trees until they could haul them off and bring them back to Disneyland, planting them throughout the park and on the berms that would be created to keep the outside world away. And I think is this is a major part of the appeal of Disneyland. It's something I didn't understand until I moved to L.A. and spent some time there. 
that once you're just in the sort of concrete desert flatness of LA and then you go to Disneyland, I mean, we'd grown up in a very sort of verdant area and going down to Disney world, we knew that the, the flowers were pretty and the landscaping was very nice, but it wasn't like a huge change. It was just really well done and on a huge scale. But going from L.A., where everything's dry and dirty and the to Disneyland, it is a really a transformational experience. It really is. And, the and you know, then later on, as it would get more urbanized, the berm is just an incredible feat at Disneyland. The fact that they thought about that so early on uh, for that park in particular is just... It's just amazing. It's it's so effective. It's really yeah the ultimate achievement, and we see like in later places where they didn't do it, the effect of not right, doing it right. as well. It only proves how right they were at the beginning. The jungle of the world famous Jungle Cruise is a major point of emphasis in Evans's work designing the landscaping for Disneyland, and his encyclopedic knowledge of plants and their native habitats certainly came in handy. A decade after Disneyland's opening, he would recount in his book, Disneyland, A World of Flowers, quote, An honest-to-goodness jungle is often monotonous, dominated by only two or three species of plants. We've taken some liberties in order to add variety, color, and interest to the Disneyland version. In our jumble, you will see, in addition to the typical palms, bananas, philodendrons, giant honeysuckle, tree ferns, and hibiscus. He continues, In 1955, after the earth-moving equipment had departed from Adventureland, planning began in the sandy waste. As technicians were also at work digging assorted mechanical crocodiles, rhinos, and elephants in and out, the young planning suffered. Some succumbed to the trampling, but most survived, luckily, growing large enough to fight back, until today our jungle is nearly as formidable as a real thing. Evans goes on to profile curiosities, including a pepper tree trunk, originally intended to be a prop that took root in the concrete river channel against all odds. Hmm. Evans also acknowledges some fake flowers within the Jungle Cruise, which brings up another incredibly unique aspect of his work, the blending of the artificial with the real. Of course, the first thing that comes to mind is the Swiss Family Robinson Treehouse, situated in the aptly named Disneyodendron Semperflorens Grandis, or Large Ever-Blooming Disney Tree, But Evans recalls a coral tree that was moved in Adventureland and given faux banyan tree-esque roots that were really made of concrete and metal. I love stuff like this. Yeah, that's that's amazing. Evans would even use the reel to create an illusion, as in the case of the Matterhorn Mountain, where Evans and his crew found small Colorado spruces growing in higher elevations and brought them to be more in scale with the mountain and needle size and their slow growth needing only a few scoops of sawdust and concrete, living off water and liquid nitrogen. What? I never knew yeah. that. <laughs> yes. We'd have people, you know, go tend to the uh, spruces on the Matterhorn with their liquid nitrogen. Mercy. Yeah. Uh, the true senior citizens of Disneyland would be found in Storybook Land, where pine trees aged over 150 years old were brought in from Mendocino County some 500 miles away to be maintained as natural dwarfs and specialty soil. They look like they're pruned, but they're just really tiny. Really tiny and really old. Really old. After the years as the head of landscaping at Disneyland, Evans would work on several projects outside of Disney, including 
Busch Gardens in Van Nuys, California, and the interesting Thumbs Islands project in Long Beach. Here he and Joe Lanesh would reunite to disguise oil drills off the coast with islands built of boulders, and landscape to look like offshore resorts complete with faux high-rises on steel tracks that would disguise the drills themselves and allow for movement, as well as scenic waterfalls that would help disguise the noise of the drilling. The islands would be named after the astronauts that died in the Apollo 1 fire, along with one named after Ted Freeman, who was the first astronaut to die in duty as a test pilot. I just had to bring these up because they are so super cool. That is, I have not heard of this, and that is really weird. It's kind of like a Horizons, I think, like the offshore yes. resorts, except they're just right. hiding an oil rig. Right, and they are still there. It's just amazing. I love the waterfall, too. Yeah, to hide the sound. I mean, the water, yeah. that's what waterfalls are good for, man. That's, right. that's why that's you right. think of the, the land lobby there in uh, in Epcot and how loud it is now that the, that the fountain is gone from there. And, that's uh, true. It's making a big true. difference. Soon enough, the Walt Disney World project would take Evans to Florida for an even larger adventure. Uh, even before the land was fully drained in Florida, Bill was setting up a tree farm to experiment with plants in the central Florida climate. This farm would be one of the first things built on property and become a critical part of the goings-on on property through opening day and beyond. In an interview in the 1980s with Jim Corcus, Bill said, quote, I wanted to start a tree farm to start producing some of the material we needed. A surveyor said, there's just a place for it. There's a hill over on the west side that would be just fine. Not that many trees on it. He drove me over. There wasn't a bit of a road. It was all pasture land and swamp, and an exceedingly poor pasture land at that. We finally arrived at the spot, and he said, What do you think of that? It's a hill. Boy, you could have fooled me. There was a place out there maybe about six or eight feet of freeboard before you ran into the water table. (laughs) (laughs) Things are different, yes. I want to hang with Bill Evans. Oh, totally. a, A dude. Sounds like a major dude. Evans wasted no time in beginning to transform this plot of land into what would become a revolutionary horticultural research center that would transform the property and landscapes across central Florida. This was yet another example of the prototype systems that were built into Walt Disney World from the very beginning, Michael. I mean, they're just everything they were building to be uh, prototypes. Yeah, pushing the boundaries wherever they could find a place to push. Yeah. In 1967, Marty Sklar toured the Walt Disney World construction site by helicopter and sat and wrote a letter to Walt telling him what he saw one year after Walt's death. Sklar was, quote, sitting on top of a Navis because he was told not to sit on the ground right outside Evans's tree farm, which at that time he reported had three acres planted and that soon would have 30 acres planted. Eventually, Evans and his crew would plant 55 acres of plants, including 55,000 trees and shrubs. In 1968, just one year later, the Orlando Sentinel introduced Charlie Sepulveda, another former Disneyland employee who had come to be on site throughout and run the Horticultural Research Center while Evans came and went from California. By then, massive amounts of cut timber had been collected to hold down trees in the events of high winds being buried into the ground and attached to the trees by guy wires. A revolutionary irrigation system was installed that included fertilizer injectors that would mix fertilizer in with watering to speed up growth. And man, they sped up growth quite a bit. 
Yeah, this just seems like a time when anything was possible. It's like we have yes. all this crazy technology and we can do anything we want to because we are going all That's in. Right. That's right. Uh, the big challenge was learning what would grow in Florida. Plants were brought in from around the world, including Indonesia, Australia, and New Zealand, to name a few places, to experiment with a climate full of rain and some cold snaps. After a frost, Sepulveda and his crew kept plants alive by using heaters, they would move around the tree farm. Evans trucked hundreds of tropical plants to Cleveland to see which plants would be best to use, which I think is a funny detail. <laughs> sure. Okay. Evans would move and plant hundreds of oaks, planting many from acorns and supervising their growth for years, moving them around property for later use. A great deal of these were on Preview Boulevard, now known as Buena Vista Drive. That was where the Preview Center was. The most famous oak, of course, existed on property long before Evans came around, the Liberty Tree Oak. Evans and his crew worked with this tree for a year, pruning the limbs and roots back. Those roots were pruned about 80% of their original size. To move it, they would use a method that was looked down upon by botanists in Florida, as it was so new they thought it couldn't work. Evans had tried the method years before when Walt wanted a coral tree moved to make room for the terrace in Adventureland. Evans bored into the tree and put a steel bar in to move it instead of ringing the tree, which he was worried would kill it. The coral tree survived and would be that same tree with the fake banyan roots by the Jungle Cruise we mentioned earlier. Evans would use this method to move hundreds of trees around Disneyland, most notably when the berm and its mature trees had to be moved when the railroad relocated for the building of its small world. Hmm. The crews would uproot the trees, wash the dirt off the roots, move the tree, and a bulldozer would take the dirt from the berm and build it up around the trees in one movement. And 90% of those trees survived this, which I cannot believe. Yeah, seriously. The Liberty Oak weighed 32 tons. It had to be moved four miles from a staging area, which took quite a while to pull off. The truck ride was perilous enough, but when the oak was being lowered into its place, a crane operator dropped the tree, damaging the root system. Small oak shoots were grafted into the larger tree's trunk, and Evans replaced the boreholes. Of course, those eventually became diseased, so they were removed and replaced with concrete, and the tree lives on today. What a beautiful tree it is. It is, and just amazing that it survived. Yes. Uh, Evans scoured the world for plants that would work to recreate all kinds of different climates in Florida. And, you know, this has just brought up the realization that I had never thought about. You know, you think about all the themed lands and all their needs and how they all represent different climates. And yeah. you have to make it work in one climate and you have to make that theme work all around the world now. I mean, it's it's a crazy discipline. Yes, it really is. Of great interest to Florida reporters were experiments with the redwood and how it grew twice as fast in Florida than its native California. Suckers. <laughs> they rubbed it in the face of the citrus board. That's right. Uh, for the Skyway, the deodar tree was found in India to replicate the alpine fir trees that require higher elevation to thrive. Giant bamboo was picked in Asia that was frostproof. And just in case, Disney installed a 25 million BTU forced air heating system for the Jungle Cruise's jungle to keep the plants warm and comfortable in the winter. Again, anything was possible. Mm -hmm. And as Evan said, quote, all these things had to be worked out long before the first bamboo shoot was planted. On Main Street, the landscapers had the problem of planting on the second floor as the utilidors ran the length of the street underneath the surface and planting could jeopardize the trees or the structure itself. 
For this, Disney built a pot plant system on Main Street where the plants were placed in giant subterranean pots with watering, feeding, and drainage concerns built into the Utildor tunnels beneath the street. Man, an answer for everything. I know. And I mean, just so going the extra mile in places people would never see or notice. That's right. But they but they still use them. Yeah. And it man, it made good show for sure. That's right. Landscapers would struggle planting all they had grown at the tree farm as the Magic Kingdom's soil had been reclaimed from the digging out of the Seven Seas Lagoon. Since all the dirt was essentially upside down from the digging of the lagoon, the Magic Kingdom's dirt was mostly clay, which proved problematic with drainage and required a lot of soil management. Yeah, root mat. Eventually, the Magic Kingdom and the rest of the Vacation Kingdom would open to the public with great fanfare. The Polynesian's grounds were designed by Evans, who clearly specialized in tropical exotic plants. But his hand was felt throughout, especially the golf courses, the magnolia and the palm. So, I mean, he was he had to have been so busy. But mm-hmm. I, I feel like the Polynesian is a great legacy of his that still goes on, in addition to the Jungle Cruise. Throughout the 70s, as the Walt Disney World property would slowly be developed, the Horticultural Research Center would continue to thrive and innovate. In the 70s, it moved to where a lot of folks would know it, on the road today called Bear Island Road, where the Walt Disney World Nursery is. But it would also extend all the way to where the savannah of the Animal Kingdom's Kilimanjaro Safaris is today. In addition to landscaping all of Lake Buena Vista, the center would also participate in the Water Hyacinth Project, a groundbreaking project that used the plant to treat wastewater from the property. The water would be used for irrigation on the nursery, and the hyacinths would be used as compost to enrich and feed the plants. In addition, at one time, Disney considered growing sorghum or sugarcane for biomass conversion for energy or turning eucalyptus into coal. Wow. Now that is something I've never heard of. Man, this water hyacinth thing was their go-to example of Epcot Mm -hmm. in action back when we were kids. They were high up on this water hyacinth project. Is going to be a big deal, but turning eucalyptus into coal is completely new to me. <laughs> yeah. It's very seventies uh, to be like, oh yeah, let's let's do grow something that we can make into coal. Yeah, but uh, man, what? Yeah, it's just again searching for uh, you know prototype systems. So that uh, water hyacinth project worked very well for a long time. Yeah, a an example to the world of how these things could be done. That's right. Uh, now, eucalyptus was a plant that Evans almost single-handedly brought to Florida, a plant that hadn't been thought to be able to survive the cold and quickly became a favorite planting for screen. As for Evans, he was forced into retirement along with a lot of Disney legends in 1975 when they reached the age of 65. Boo. Evans would never quite be done with Disney, though, and go on to consult on Discovery Island and almost everything else built in Florida, including Animal Kingdom, Typhoon Lagoon. He would work on Tokyo and Hong Kong Disneylands before his death in 2002. Evans insisted that when the land was being cleared for Epcot Center, the graders not pile on fill as they did in the Magic Kingdom with clay being on top, but instead demanded a sandy soil be placed on top. And he was certain this would make Epcot a much more friendly place to landscape. And indeed, the job for Epcot was massive, headed in part by Tony Virginia, who purchased tons of plants and supervised their growth pre-opening. 
By 1980, greenhouses were already prepping plants for Epcot, including some mimosa trees and orchids for the Costa Rican Pavilion. Alas. Oh, man. Yeah. That would have, that, that pavilion was supposed to be just a giant, giant greenhouse with all sorts of animals and plants inside, and it would have been spectacular. Yeah, it's wild how far out they have to get before even confirmed plans. Yeah. A major source of pride for Virginia was a rare Senegal palm he purchased out of a yard in Tampa for $4,000. This would be moved directly behind Earth Station in a place of prominence for years. Mm -hmm. Virginia would show off rows of palms to an Orlando Sentinel reporter in December 1981 that were slated for planting in front of Spaceship Earth. Love those. And discussed plans to purchase a 100-year-old mulberry tree from New Jersey to plant in the China Pavilion, which is still there. Uh, some of those oaks we mentioned earlier at Lake Buena Vista would be removed for Epcot, as many oaks would be used to ring World Showcase and other areas of the park. It's just so cool to me they had all this stuff in their back pocket to use when they needed it. I know. And that, yeah, that was a great thing about the land at Disney World is that they could kind of store stuff and leave it in the ground and move it whenever they wanted to. So uh, Epcot was a real landscaping showcase when it opened. Um, but perhaps the most incredible feat of all was Disney's Animal Kingdom, and perhaps no park ever before or since had landscaping played such a role in the planning of a park. I have to go into this in detail on a later episode, but another berm was built around this park and ringed with plants for use in the park, not only for landscaping, but for the animals to eat. As we have said, the giant savanna lay on a big part of what used to be the Horticultural Research Center, and in 1991 as the property where Disney's Animal Kingdom would go was being slated for future development, an even larger tree-moving feat took place. This time, horticulturalists would move an 82-ton, 55-foot-tall live oak, aged between 100 to 200 years old, and would move 108 power poles, six traffic lights, and cross five bridges to move it to Old Man Island at the Dixie Landings Resort. Oh. This process took eight six-ton steel beams, a month of preparation at a cost of nearly a million dollars. But according to Dick Nunes, quote, it's a demonstration project to show that you don't have to destroy old trees for progress, end quote. Yeah. That's right. Man, and that tree is incredible, if you haven't seen it. It's just a beautiful tree. Yes, it is. As for the tree farm, it has shrunk through the years to a nursery that was a small version of what used to be. Evans's topiaries, which were originally such a marvel in the way that many trees and shrubs were grown from the ground up to become one green shape of something or another, were grown using mirrors to accelerate growth, has been replaced by a new form of planting where grasses and mosses are incorporated in shoots to the frame. These may not last as long, but certainly are more diverse in their appearance and easier to make. I can't believe the legs of those topiaries of Disneyland and early Walt Disney World era were different trees. That just kind of blew my mind. That's so crazy. Yeah. And I mean, you imagine it would take a while to do those. That's right. I mean, it's just, yeah. Eventually, the Flower and Garden Festival would come to prominence, and the build-out of property would make even the maintenance of existing areas a monumental task. Uh, for years, the folks in horticulture at Walt Disney World would benefit from Bill Evans's knowledge and the experimental methods directly. And even now, as we are entering the generations where Evans has never been physically around these people, his influence is still felt 
Even Evans's oaks he planted continually move about property to grace different areas. Just like a few years ago when many of his oaks surrounding the Magic Kingdom parking lot were shipped off around property to make room for the flyover from the toll plaza. Fully mature oaks now over 50 years old, once grown from acorns on a hillside in central Florida. So that wraps up our trip through Adventureland. And man, this has been a lot of fun. You know, Adventureland's a land that's just so rich with good food, good music, good plants, good culture, all kinds of stuff. Yeah, it's been really fun. I don't know. I feel like all these episodes we've done have been really fun in stepping back and taking a look at things with fresh eyes. You get so used to things and they just become part of the sort of the background noise. When you take a fresh look at it, you really appreciate the work and the craft that has gone into it. And especially Adventureland, which I think, while it doesn't have, uh, well, the Tiki Room, it has the Tiki Room, um, doesn't have my favorite attractions aside from that. It has an atmosphere that may be my favorite. Mm -hmm. um, I, I don't know, some of my favorite tropes in the theme park world and some that Disney does best. And like you said, the music, uh, as we've been working on these episodes, I've been listening to a lot of Adventureland loops here at home. And, uh, you know, just Polynesian music in general, sort of mid-century, that sort of Hawaiian slash Polynesian style of music. That's my go-to working music anyway. Like, I have a Pandora station that's all, like, tiki music. Right. And when I'm, when I'm writing, that's what I put on. And so, like, the veranda loop, the Polynesian hotel loop... Oh, it's it's just so transportive, so relaxing, and as you said, the food can't be beat. That's right. So we sadly bid adieu, but we've got an exciting destination coming up next month. Uh, Michael, where are we headed to next? Well, we're heading into another one of my favorite themes, another theme that Disney does super well, and we are loading up our six shooters and heading into the wild, wild west for Frontierland. Yeah. I love me some Frontierland. We got, we got a little bit into this in episode eight with our wilderness episode, but we, this is gonna be something we, I'm sure we come back to over and over and over again, as it's something that factored significantly into our childhood and beyond. Absolutely, there's so much material. This was such a rich part of the Disney tradition, and there's, there's a lot to talk about. That's right. So we'd like to hear from you. Uh, you can email us at podcast at progresscityusa.com. And of course, we're on Twitter. Michael's at Progress City USA, And I'm at Jeff G. Crawford. And of course, we have our Patreon. Uh, that is at patreon.com slash progresscityusa. Now, Michael, we have a, a, a live stream event coming up soon for our patreon members that's right i believe uh, may 29th we'll be doing our next live stream for our silver level patrons and we really appreciate your support it really helps us put out these shows 
So drop by and uh, see what we're doing over on the Patreon. I also, you know, we always give out our email. And there are a couple of people we hear from uh, from time to time, and we really appreciate it. But we'd really like to hear from you, so I'd like to issue a challenge. A challenge from me. Uh, drop us a line with some Adventureland memories of times past. Maybe we'll do a mailbag at the top of the next show. Get, get you on the air. Could be. Talk about what's going on. I'd like to hear some Adventureland thoughts, recollections, that sort of thing. So drop us a line. Yeah, we love talking to people on Twitter. We get in conversations about stuff, but, you know, it'd be good to to fill up that mailbag. I'd like to issue a challenge to rate and review us on your podcast platform because that always helps as well. So we're excited to hear from you whenever we do. We appreciate everybody who listens and uh, the folks on Patreon, of course, uh, we appreciate it. We look forward to hearing from you and we look forward to seeing you again soon in your feeds when we tackle Frontierland. Until then, from all of us to all you, be safe. We'll see you soon. Right now, it's time to go. Remember, everything you've seen here in our all-electric city is really possible today. So if you know any cities looking for a new springtime of progress, tell them about Progress City. Thanks, Thanks for, for joining, joining us. us. Listening to the Progress City Radio Hour, created by the folks at ProgressCityUSA.com. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at Progress City USA. If you want to contact us, please write podcast at ProgressCityUSA.com. The Progress City Radio Hour is recorded at Arbor Ridge Studios in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, on the web at ArborRidgeStudios.com. The title theme was composed by Jeff Crawford, whose music can be found at jeffcrawfordmusic.com. Please join us again soon for another Progress City Radio Hour. They call it Progress.